is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we do have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you like what you hear on the show, come hang out with us on the blog where we get really in-depth on some of these topics so you can further engage with the AOC team there as well. Or if you're new to the show and you want to find out more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, you can go to the website. We'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, dating, attraction, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, and a whole lot more. We've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California, and we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you wanna learn and grow. And we've got our new networking product, Social Capital, that's available on the website as well. We're sold out a couple of months in advance for our live program, so if you're even thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP by phone or just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com to get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with Professor Barbara Oakley. We're gonna talk about the dangers of following your passion, meta-learning, of which she is a real expert, why we procrastinate, and practical techniques to get past it. I'm guilty of that, and I'm sure many of us are. Getting and staying motivated, learning recall, and creativity exercises. I really like this one. She's a sweetheart, and she is a friggin' brilliant. So enjoy this one with Dr. Barbara Oakley. Where are you living right now? Are you in Rochester? I am in Rochester, uh, the beautiful heart of, uh, well, downtown Michigan, sort of. Uh, it's it's actually a great little town. Yeah, I, it's uh, right around the corner. And you're you're an, what I found interesting was you're, you're an engineering professor, but it seems like you you do so much more. I mean, there's neuroscience here. There's habit forming and psychology and things like that, and and meta learning. How did you end up in engineering when you have interest and expertise in all those different fields? I think that's the great thing about being a professor, especially once you get tenure, you can do whatever you want. And uh, so I, I take that to heart. I love to do that. And I think part of it, though, is I was shaped because long before I became a professor, I had expertise or I just did a lot of non-professorial sorts of things. I worked as a Russian translator out on Soviet trawlers up in the Bering Sea. Actually, I learned Russian when I was in the Army. I started out as a private and ended up as a captain and uh, met my husband. I was working at the South Pole Station in Antarctica. That was 31 years ago. He charmed the pants off me, actually. I think all of those different kinds of things that I did before I became a professor actually influence what I do as a professor because I'm just, I'm not just totally into a small tidbit of academia, but I, I like to tie things together from a bigger picture perspective. I think that makes a lot of sense. And the academic disciplines are, are sort of forced separated for ease of teaching other people. However, they're not really all separate, right? I mean, engineering and biology and the brain and habit forming and all that stuff, there's tentacles in each of those areas. They all overlap in some way. They have to. And so it's great to have that interdisciplinary stuff. And as the results come together really, really well, I mean, tell us what you do in one sentence, if you could. <laughs> what, what do I do? In one? That's a toughie. I think I love to look at life with a profoundly scientifically influenced underpinning, which is pretty boring, sounds boring. You had said before, and I'll, I'll do it for you if you don't mind, you said you knit together broad yet practical scientifically grounded insights about the human psyche that the specialists miss. That's a better way of putting it than I did right off the cuff right here. It is exactly right. I think what people often do is they, especially professors who are so brilliant and so so deeply trained with what they really know, 
that they forget to, you know, sort of look up at the horizon and see how it connects together with other disciplines, bigger picture sorts of things. So that's what I love to do. Now, you've got a lot of awards and you've, you co-teach something at Coursera, learning how to learn, which is a very popular topic on this show. And you've won a lot of awards from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, which I would say we've all heard of those. And you're kind of an adventurer, which I like, as we just heard. I mean, the South Pole is a, it sounds like a totally different show at this point. And the, the Soviet trawlers and stuff, I mean, I don't know. It's like we're talking to a Indiana Jones meets 007 over here. So we're going to get some good stuff today, I think. So you've got something called a MOOC, which is, I've heard of this. Can you tell us what those are and what yours is? Well, a MOOC is a massive open online course. And basically you can go on for free and you can learn about anything you want to learn about. So if you're a especially if you're interested in Greek vases, you can learn about Greek vases or you can learn about uh, terrorism or or you can uh, aspects of Thomas Jefferson, all sorts of different things. The MOOC that I put together with Terence Sanowski, he's the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute, a, a legendary neuroscientist and a, a really fun guy. We put together a MOOC on learning how to learn. And we have right now nearly a million students have enrolled for the course. It's It's almost the largest MOOC in the world, uh, the largest course in the world. So it's really fun and interesting because we get a lot of feedback on what people are trying to learn, what they're trying to do. And one of the biggest things I find is that people, they often box themselves in by following their passion. That's interesting because on this show, I'm kind of like, it's my like refrain, I guess you would say is don't don't necessarily follow your passion, which is really counterintuitive because a lot of people go, just follow your passion, you know, build it and they'll come. And I'm really, I really don't think that's a good thing to do for multiple reasons, but I'd love to hear your reasons and I'll add them to my own. Well, part of it is my own, uh, my own, what happened to me. I flunked my way through elementary, middle and high school math and science. I absolutely hated math, hated science, wanted nothing to do with it ever in my entire life. I actually got called into the dean, uh, dean's office once in eighth grade because I was reading during math class. And I, it's so funny now because I'm a professor of engineering. Yeah, and- go figure. Good job not ever having anything to do with math and science ever again, as you stated in eighth grade. It did make me laugh. My father, you know, usually you don't laugh at having Alzheimer's, but my father was a great sport and encouraged laughing at these kinds of things. But I remember I would go in and see him every day and he'd always say, long time no see what you've been up to, Uh, even though I saw him every day. And he's remembering what he can remember is me as a child where I couldn't even learn the multiplication tables. And he would say, what you been up to? And I'd say, well, dad, I'm I'm working over at Oakland University. Now I'm a professor of engineering. And he'd go, no, right? Because he's thinking of when I I couldn't do math at all. But I think this is a tribute to the idea that you can do way more than you you think you can do. And you can change what your passions are. You can change what you're good at, what you're interested in. And it can actually be really beneficial in today's uh, society and culture. So um, one time, one of my students found out about my sordid past as a, a math flunky, and he asked me how I did it. And it was hard. I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't hard. But the thing is, it was it was something that I... I used skills in another area to help me leverage and get on board in this new area. So in other words, I learned language. And then I thought, well, why don't I try taking my language learning skills and applying that to math and science? And you know what? It worked great. Interesting. So So you you actually started off by taking one area of learning and plugging plugging it into the next. Yes. A big thing that people don't realize is that that practice and repetition with little tidbits 
can help build your learning expertise no matter what you're learning. And I'm talking about no matter whether you're learning in math and science, you're learning in language, you're learning how to play a musical instrument, you're learning how to, uh, how to do a certain type of dance or sports. So where does the, the sort of follow your passion stuff go astray then? I get what you're saying and interdisciplinary learning and meta-learning and things like that, of course, all enhance the process. But what happens when people, quote unquote, follow their passion that you think is problematic? First off, many people have the same passions. So what that means is a lot of people end up competing for the things that are, well, your passions develop at what you're good at. And you're good at things that are easiest for you. So in other words, what that means is, is people end up going into things that are easy for them that a lot of other people are doing because it's easy for them. It's highly competitive and it's kind of, often you can have real expertise, but sometimes you can have great expertise, but it's also a stroke of luck. So if your passion is playing basketball and you want to be the world's one of the top, look at the statistics. It'd be uh, pretty tough for you to get there. Also, what we do when we have passions is we get this sort of feeling like we have to be loving whatever we're doing. But a lot of times becoming an expert, a real expert in something involves a lot of difficulty, a lot of hard work. And sometimes it's not pleasant. If you're becoming a concert pianist, for example, a lot of times it's drudgery. You're yeah. doing a lot of extra practicing and so forth, and it's not fun. But if we follow that mentality of, oh, I'm following my passion, as soon as something becomes hard work instead of fun, we tend to think, well, then it must not be for me. I, I should switch whatever I'm looking uh, for. Right, right, because now the passion turns into, you, you start to see it as work, and you go, well, I must just not be that passionate about this if it feels like work. Yes, yes. Even though the work is, is part and parcel of, of what it takes to gain any kind of expertise. Yeah, yeah, I see that. And, and there, you have this topic that we had discussed before, this principle that we had discussed before called chunking, where you're getting smooth practice chunks of knowledge. And how does the chunking concept or the concept of chunking play into this? Because Gaining those smooth practice chunks of knowledge in art, sports, math, language, and things like that. What is that and how does that play into the, the passion and the, and the learning? Okay, I'm going to circle back to what you're asking because what you're asking is a fundamentally important question. Okay. And I'm going to start by talking about horses. Uh, if, if you look at the Comanche Empire, there were these incredible, this incredible Indian group, um, Native American group that had this ability with horses that was phenomenal. So they went in the span of a generation from, uh, uh, they walked around, they did everything that normal walking nomadic groups did. And then suddenly they got horses and they acquired a mastery of how you handle horses that was that far surpassed any other group uh, in the area. And also uh, the, um, you know, the incoming Westerners uh, were blown away by how good those Comanches were. So in other words, the Comanches got this technological tool and they, the horse, that was their technology of a sort. It allowed them to get up high and travel really fast. And they learned how to use it really, really well. They changed themselves and what they were capable of learning and doing. And as a result, their entire group benefited. So everything changes. It, societies change and cultures change. And, you know, the, the forces of history are replete with change. And we are now moving into a phase where horses just aren't that big anymore. If you're a horse whisperer, it may be fun, but that's not going to get you a job in the marketplace. But technological expertise, that's big. That is moving it. That's the horse of the modern age is being able to handle technology, being able to 
do a computational analysis, just kind of be able to get along well in the new analytical world is really important. And yet only 17% of our high school t- seniors want anything to do with the STEM disciplines, right? The science, technology, engineering, and math. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, back to Barbara Oakley. Can I counterpoint here real quick? I mean, I don't know if I'm right. You're actually, you may prove me wrong here in just like two shakes, but... Just because somebody doesn't want to study computers, for example, doesn't necessarily mean they won't be technologically proficient, in my opinion, right? Because I didn't study computers, and yet I remember in college, I went to University of Michigan, and a lot of my friends were engineering students, and some of them were computer science students, and they came into my apartment one time, I remember this very clearly, a group of guys came in, who now, by the way, work for Facebook, they came in and they said, what's all these parts on the floor? And I said, oh, I'm building a computer. And they said, you know how to build your own PC? And I said, yeah. And they go, are you in engineering? I thought you were studying like German or something. And I said, no, I just figured it out. It's actually really not that hard. And they looked at each other and they were like, I have no idea how that would ever happen. And I said, well, that's okay. It's not for everybody. And they said, no, 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 but we're double majoring in like computer science and mechanical engineering. And it was like this weird moment where the guy who knew how to build a spaceship didn't know how to put together a Lego fire station. That's how I felt at the time. And I I am talking about the computer being really easy because anybody who's done it knows that it's like deceptively simple. It's, It's literally you're plugging things in that are completely easy. But I think a lot of younger kids are like, we have marketing guys that we pay really good money to. And um, we've fired since, of course, because my younger cousin was using YouTube and Snapchat and showing us things that I was paying these quote unquote consultants like $8,000 a month to use for us. And he said, this is so easy. You should never pay anyone for that. And the difference was the consultant was 31 and my cousin was 18. (laughs) Well, this is actually exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You are precisely correct when you say people don't necessarily have to have, uh, they don't have to major in a particular topic, but they do, it really benefits them if they're willing to get some of that expertise. And you can clearly see how that's happened for you. And people who are able to integrate this this sort of new horse, the new technology into their daily lives, no matter what their background is and no matter what their interests are, they can really benefit. And and that's that's kind of the thing I'm talking about. I I believe that you are a rare bird. I think that the 17% who are interested in careers in science and technology, you're right. That that's not 
the total picture. There are still broader people who may not want to major in it, but they have an interest in it. Um, and so, and you're a definite uh, great example of that. But circling back around, oftentimes when people want to gain expertise in something, and they they are often taught to practice and repeat and get these ideas down if they are learning something like German, a language, uh, or music, or a sport, or, or dance, or something along those lines. But they're not taught how important it is to chunk and practice with math and science related sort of things. So, for example, if you do a homework problem related to, to math, you do it and you turn it in and you never look at it again. But would you ever play a song one time and say you knew it if you were trying to learn how to play a musical instrument? Of course not. No. And that's that's the kind of idea. So part of it is the way we teach in math and science sometimes makes it more difficult or makes it so people think, oh, I just don't have this natural skill when they actually do. It's just that they're not getting enough practice and repetition as they would have if they've been studying something else. You would be amazed in other countries there's not this math phobia like there is in the United States and in some European countries. They're just not. If you go to Asia or you, you go, people are very aware that, hey, it's kind of like driving a car is learning math. Some people take longer to learn how to drive a car, but most people can learn how to drive a car. And it's the same with math, just takes you a little longer and more practice for some people. But they're not scared of it because they've had plenty of practice. Yeah, I can see. I mean, I'm I'm actually scared of math and I'm not saying that to like be funny. I hate it and I, I'm afraid of making mistakes with it. And I was in honors math in high school. It's just that it was so hard and so traumatizing. And I was, you know, dead last in the class, even though I had a tutor and everything. It's just something I was not good at. And I had a bunch of bad math teachers. So now when a check comes or something and everybody wants to split it between four people, even if it's like a hundred dollars and one cent and there's four people, I go, mm, somebody else do this. Cause I just, I have that weird phobia of like getting it wrong and other people, you know, laughing at me or something. I mean, it's not real. I don't care if everyone laughs at me. It's happened, it happens every day, but but it's a weird thing that I am actually afraid of the subject. And I can't say that about pretty much anything else. My suspicion is that if you had grown up in China, uh, you would feel pretty comfortable of your math mastery. Um, most kids in China are like way ahead of, you know, by the time you get to eighth grade in China, you're, you're several years, a number of years ahead of a typical American student. And you're also just more comfortably casual with it. My own children, I, I had them in something called Kuman Mathematics, which just gives extra practice and repetition. And I, I'll bet you if you'd had that from a young age, you'd be going, oh, math is so easy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, luckily, I no, I can hire other people to do my math. I'm dating an accountant, so, you know. I'm off the hook forever, pretty much. But <laughs> that wasn't part of the plan, but it worked out pretty well so far. Uh, I think another topic that actually is really interesting and very related to th things like learning and math, for, especially for me, is, is procrastination. And I think this is one of the main learning killers is not actually approaching a subject to, to get it done in the first place. And I, I do this with things that that I can't stand or that I'm afraid of as well. Even like public speaking, which I'm diving headfirst into this year and, uh, and next year, when I have to rehearse a talk, for example, I would rather clean the bathroom floor than rehearse the talk. And can we talk a little bit about why we procrastinate and, and how we can nip that in the bud? Because I, I, th I know that a lot of people do this, even if they think they're not the type, it's sort of subject dependent. Somebody who says, I never procrastinate, I always get things done. You ask them to do something that they really aren't comfortable with and suddenly they've got to go grocery shopping. Well, here's what happens when you ask, bring up the idea of something that somebody doesn't want to do. So let's say you're that person. And you start thinking about, oh, I have to practice my speech. You may not realize it, but that 
actually activates part of the insular cortex, which is affiliated with pain, right? So your brain feels pain, the same kind of physical pain as if you just, you know, stabbed yourself accidentally with a fork or something. It, it, it feels yes. that when you think about something you don't want to do. So there's two ways your brain can kind of go through that. And one of them is that they can work through for, let's say, 20 minutes. And after about 20 minutes, that pain will go away. But there's another easier, softer way that your brain likes to do. And that is simply to switch its attention from what it doesn't like to something that's more pleasant. And the result is that you feel better instantly. But the bad part is that means you've just procrastinated. So procrastination often arises from this little cue of pain that causes you to switch attention and then your attention's off it. And you didn't even kind of notice that you're procrastinating until later and you're looking back and go, wait a minute, I was supposed to be doing that. So a really very important or valuable way to get past this is to start thinking in terms of process, not the product. So when your mind starts going, oh no, I can't do the speech practice, it's painful for me, then go, oh, well, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to work on it for 25 minutes and not even notice how I kind of said it in a low tone of voice. It's because it doesn't matter what you're doing. You just got to do 25 minutes of it. When you stop thinking of what you're supposed to be doing and just think of it in terms of, oh, I'm just supposed to work effectively on something for 25 minutes, you can slip past that pain in your brain and start actually working on it. So that's called the Pomodoro technique. And what you want to do is turn off all those little buzzers and alarms and the usual things that can distract you. And then you set a timer for 25 minutes and then you just focus as hard as you can. There'll always be little distracting thoughts that will arise somewhere along the way, and you just let them drift right on by and return your attention to what you're doing. And it's it in our almost million students in the MOOC, they love this Pomodoro technique. It is incredibly effective. Does that mean tomato, by the way? I feel like that means tomato. It does. It was invented by an Italian uh, named Francesco Cirillo in the early 1980s. And he had a little timer uh, that was shaped like a tomato. And so he called, that's why he called it the Pomodoro technique. But the reality is you can use any sort of timer. <laughs> you don't have to use a tomato timer. It works with other timers. <laughs> yeah, <Exactly>. got it. <laughs> Although I, I can imagine someone's like, I couldn't do the technique because Amazon was out of tomato timers. So I'm still procrastinating. It is surprising because sometimes here's uh, here's what people who are struggling in school will do. They'll say, I'm going to make an appointment with a academic tutor. <laughs> but what that actually does is it allows them to procrastinate. And they can right. feel safe while they're doing it. You know, they're, they're waiting for the tutor, but actually it's just a very clever way of procrastinating. Yeah, well, uh, people do that in dangerous ways. People do it, especially, and I find myself doing this, like, well, you know, this thing in my back hurts, but, you know, the doctor can't see me for three weeks, so I'm just going to completely ignore it until then. And then by the time that happens, you're really in pain or, you know, something else is happening. And that's something that a lot of guys do. Well, you know, I'm not supposed to get the colonoscopy for another few years, so it couldn't be something to do with that, so I'm just going to hold off. And you end up with, with really serious complications as a result. So procrastination is not just something people do when it comes to math homework. You've hit that on the head. And not, not only that, but it's kind of like, wait a minute, what is that lump? Hey, if I just pretend it's not there and I switch my attention, I won't go to the doctor and get that lump checked out while it's still smaller. Right, so yeah. What you're talking about. It's amazing. Procrastination goes hand in hand with, in my mind, motivation as well. I think a lot of people 
procrastination, it happens because people can't quote unquote get motivated. And that's not something I identify with a lot because I feel like motivation is the least of my issues here, but I do get a lot of email from people who want to start a business but are having trouble getting motivated. Now, I think it's a it's a cover for different types of fear of failure and things like that, but do you have tips or tricks or science especially behind getting motivated? Because I think that's something where when people who are really successful not only can get motivated, but they can stay that way. I think one of the most helpful ways to get yourself motivated is I think people all too often, they're thinking of the big picture of everything they want to do. And that's great. If you want to start a big business, that's super. If you want to do all these kinds of things, that's that's great. But everything starts with one step. And a great thing to do is to, and we're getting back to that idea of chunking, but it's in a little bit of a different way, just break things down into a little doable chunk. And that's what you do. And if you're always doing these little chunks that are working towards your main goal, sometimes the big goal can actually be incredibly intimidating. So so don't look at that. I'm only look at it occasionally when the glare of the sun won't be too strong. Instead, be working on these pieces that you can grasp and do, and you put enough of them together. They're like bricks. You lay enough of them, and you start getting to where you want to go without being intimidated, I think, by that big picture of what you're really trying to do. You've got your chicken coop story warmed up? My chicken coop. I think one of the things that one of my students told me was it's it's really important to try to reframe or to properly frame what you're trying to do. So sometimes what you're trying to do is to get yourself out of a present and a past where you're you don't have a good job and things aren't going so great for you. And you want to be in a better future. So one of my students, he has a great way of handling this. He worked for a summer at a chicken coop, a chicken manufacturing, egg manufacturing facility where they just raised chickens and and had eggs and so forth. And it was terrible. It was hot. It was smelly. It was not the nicest place to work at all. And It was at that time he decided he wanted to try to become an engineer. And now he's doing really well, but he didn't to start with. It was really tough for him in the beginning. He would actually tape a picture of that chicken coop, of that chicken facility, and it would remind him of how awful it was that summer and that that's what he really wanted to get out of. And sometimes by by contrasting something really awful that you're trying to leave and contrasting that to where you want to go can be a much sharper push for you. For me, uh, being in the military, the military did some great things for me, and it it was an awesome experience. But what I didn't like was that I just had to do whatever I was told and if I didn't like who I was working for, tough luck. That's that's who you're working for. And I didn't have any real freedom. So it was a big motivator for me to help switch my brain from being a linguist to an engineer when I reflected back that I have a degree in Slavic languages and literature that's not wanted in the marketplace if I don't switch my what I know and develop some kind of different expertise, I'm always going to be finding myself in a situation somewhat like the military where it's hard for me to uh, change jobs and, and call my own shots. And that was a big motivator for me. All right, back to Barbara Oakley. Speaking of learning, learning, motivation, procrastination go hand in hand in my mind with creativity. 
and or the ability to actually use what you've learned maybe you should i don't know if that's creativity that's a de- that's debatable right but are there things that we can do to enhance creativity or maybe just even enhance recall of what we've learned and brain health i don't know where to start but i feel like all those things are interrelated they are all interrelated when we're learning something new no matter what we're learning if it's very difficult we will often have these times where we get stuck and we get frustrated. And that's often the point where we need to be able to creatively look at whatever we're, we're trying to learn. We need to look creatively at it to see it somewhat differently. And so creativity is we often think, oh, gosh, only Einstein and all these Nobel Prize winners and so forth. Those are the only people who are creative. Uh, maybe in, you know, in art, it's people like Salvador Dali. and It's the famous people who are creative. But no, every single one of us is creative. Every time we figure out something new, figure out a new problem, learn something that's kind of new – we're often being very creative in how we're doing it. So a big thing that people don't realize is the brain is, it has two fundamentally different modes of operation. One is when you're focusing hard on something, like you're just paying attention as I'm paying attention to you. And that, I'll call that the focus mode. It's like a flashlight. You turn your attention to someone or something and it's on. But the second mode is it's actually a set of relaxed neural resting states that I'll I'll collectively call the diffuse mode. And you feel the diffuse mode like if you go in and you're taking a shower and you're not thinking of anything in particular or you're going off for a walk or you're riding on a bus and you're not really thinking of it, that's the diffuse mode. And when we're learning something, we often need to, focus and pay attention, but when we get stuck, we need to set back, step back and get our mind off it, get our attention off it and allow this diffuse mode to operate in the background. That's like this wider net where our brain can wander much more widely and that's often where we can come up with the answers to new problems and new ways to to understand something that's difficult for us. Is that kind of like how I come up with solutions to things that have been killing me when I'm fresher in the morning and maybe even like in the shower or while I'm walking? Yes, indeed. And see, Here's the thing is we often feel guilty if we're something's really bothering us, we're trying to figure it out, we focus harder and harder and harder, and finally we give up, and we feel guilty, and we go off, and we're frustrated, and we go for a walk, or we go to sleep, or, or whatever. That's actually what we need to do, because that gets our brain into this other mode that allows us to think more creatively about whatever we're trying to figure out. You mentioned that creativity is counter-correlated with agreeableness. Can we discuss that? I love that concept because uh, that's me. Uh, that's Well, think about it this way. Creativity often involves thinking about something in a different way than everybody else is thinking. And often people don't like that. They're in their rut of what they're used to, what they think about, and when somebody comes to them and says, hey, wait a minute, you could do something differently. They don't go, oh, that's so great. I'm so glad you said that. They're often vested in how they're thinking about things. So research has shown that creative people tend to not be bothered as much. They're just more disagreeable. And you almost have to be to some extent, disagreeable, because if you're going to rock the status quo, you're often not going to do that as a nice person, because a nice person's going to go, oh, yeah, it's okay the way you're doing things. So I think, I like to think that the best balance is sort of a, a disagreeableness, but only when you need it. A, a willingness to fall into disagreeableness rather than a constant disagreeableness is probably the best bet for actually accomplishing a lot. 
Why is that? I guess I, I'm not totally clear on that. So, and how do we get into that state? Are we, is it just a matter of being a little more stubborn than usual? I think sometimes when you realize something is right, for example, I was on a engineering team and we were supposed to come up with a way to build a heat exchanger that would be highly efficient, really efficient. So I came up with an idea. Everybody came up with an idea. They all listened to my idea and they were like, oh, well, that's kind of stupid. But our idea is the leader of the group, of course, felt his idea was the very best. And I was sitting there thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, that's really a crappy idea. Well, I could have gone. That's a really crappy idea. Uh, (laughs) That would have even less endeared me to the group. So instead, I knew my idea was a very good idea. And so we went to the the fellow who was handling all these things. And this was in the one of our classes in engineering. So I went to the we went to the TA and I kind of managed it. So we all went in there and we all talked about our ideas. And so the TA listens to these, here's the leader's idea and says, well, you know, that's not so good. <laughs> and then he hears the other people's eh, and he hears mine and he goes, hey, you know, that actually has some real potential. That could be really good. So they weren't hearing it from me anymore. They were hearing it from somebody who was an authority figure that they recognized. So they decide to go ahead and do it. And lo and behold, it had the highest efficiency of anyone that had ever taken the class over the last 15 years. If I had been really agreeable, I would have just sat there and said, oh, okay, you don't like my idea. Well, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'd been really disagreeable, I would have said, you bunch of jerks, don't you realize, you know, this is a genius idea. And they would have still ignored me. But if I'd been sort of cleverly disagreeable, there was a way to get them on board without alienating them. And that's how it worked out. You know what, I meant to ask you this earlier, you've got a great exercise for recalling material, which I think is amazing. It's helping you learn something new from new written material better than just rereading and highlighting and concept mapping and all the stuff that I did in school that didn't necessarily work for me. I would love to to deliver that to the audience. Speaking about being disagreeable, research on how do we learn most effectively, there was a wonderful researcher named Jeff Karpicki uh, out of Purdue. In some sense, he decided to be disagreeable. He decided to go and look at how do people really learn most effectively. Now, researchers often say it's concept mapping. In other words, all you have to do if you're reading a page that's really hard, you write down the key ideas or concepts and you write connecting, make connecting lines between those ideas. And that's how you can learn most effectively. Of course, a lot of us just naturally think the most effective way for us to learn is to just sit there and underline it or highlight it or to reread it. So what Jeff Karpicki did was he said, you know what, I don't believe these techniques are really necessarily the most valuable. And in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to check it. I'm going to test and see how effectively people can learn by comparing all these different methods. And so that's what he did. And so he took concept mapping, um, underlining, rereading, and a method, another method called, well, I'll call it recall. And what recall is, is you just sit there, you look at the page, you see if you can kind of grasp the main idea, and then you look away and see if you can recall what those main ideas are. So just read it and look away and see what you can recall. This, as it turns out, was the most effective way of learning. It's something that's difficult when you're reading it. Most effective way by far. So, so how we've been teaching people to learn uh, effectively when they're reading things has actually been very counterproductive methods of, of learning. 
I often tell people, if there's one thing you take away from what I'm talking about, let it be this idea of recall, just reading and then looking away to see if you can remember what you think the most important point was. It really works. Yeah, you know, that's actually uh, one of the ways that I sort of memorize things as concepts anyway, is read something over, look at it, and then I have to walk while I do it. I don't know why. It's like a (laughs) weird thing that maybe hammers it home for me. But when I was in high school, one of my study habits was read a bunch of stuff and then walk around the block. And sometimes you can't recall something right away and it drives you nuts. But if you think hard enough or if you let it go for a while, it comes back to you later. And then when you take the test or the exam or you have to write about it, it's all there. It's kind of just been, it's been sealed in like grout and tile. And uh, from the activity, of course, but also from forcing yourself to think of it instead of just looking back at it. That is a fantastic approach. And I think one thing that discourages people is they go, well, gosh, I can only remember a couple of key concepts from when I was reading that chapter, say. But it actually is super helpful if you just have those few key concepts. And if you've got your mind on it while you're walking around or thinking, doing something, uh, you're actually sort of building these unconscious connections in your brain, you're not aware of it, but you're helping build that structure for learning. And speaking of which, we should speak just a little bit about sleep and what happens when you sleep. When you focus on something during the day, and then you go to sleep at night, this fantastic new light microscopy imaging techniques have shown that when you sleep, you're actually growing new synoptic connections in your brain. It's like that's when the architecture of learning is taking place, is when you're sleeping. So that's part of why sleep is so important. Another part is just when you go to sleep, your brain cells shrink, and that leaves a lot more space outside your cells. So the metabolites, all those kind of poisonous toxins that you give off during the day when you're just thinking your way through the day. When you go to sleep, your brain cells shrink. That opens up the passages, and then the fluids are able to wash these toxins away. So that's another reason why sleep is so incredibly important as part of the learning process. Interesting. I had no idea about the sort of physical process of that, but it it definitely makes sense that there would be a a change and that there's that interdisciplinary learning as well, right there as well. Um, The last but not least, I love the dreaming without dreaming. And since this is a sort of a practical takeaway, I'd love to wrap with that. Well, dreaming without dreaming is, that's what Salvador Dali used to call his way of getting into a diffuse mode of thinking. And what this involved was he would sit in a chair with a key in his hand and he'd have some kind of difficult problem related to his art that he'd be working on and he'd be thinking very loosely about it. He'd relax, 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 relax so much that he'd fall asleep and the key would fall from his hand. The clatter would wake him up and he'd take the ideas from the diffuse mode and take them back into the focus mode where he could refine and analyze them. And interestingly enough, Thomas Edison, at least according to legend, used to do much the same thing with ball bearings in his hand. And that's what he used to help him get into that sort of sleep without sleeping dreamlike state that allowed him to access more diffuse ways of thinking about problems, technological problems he was trying to solve. Wow. Excellent. Thank you so much for this. Is there anything that you want to make sure that you deliver that we haven't asked you yet? Oh, I think that just these ideas about procrastination, about recall, about not being frustrated. Don't feel frustrated when when you have to back away for a little while in order to grasp something new. All of these can be incredibly valuable in anything you're learning or doing in your life. So I thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. There's so much here that if, or we have enough content for like a two-hour show, but I know from doing those in the past that uh, they're not, the audience doesn't love them even when the content's amazing. So <laughs> we'll have to have you back sometime. 
Okay, it'd be my pleasure and thanks again. Thank you so much, Professor Barbara Oakley. Great episode. She's so nice and she's so accomplished. It's really, it's really humbling and I really like it. The dangers of following your passion, meta learning, always a hot topic here on the show, procrastination, something that even top performers, like I, if you had asked me honestly before I started public speaking stuff a couple of months ago, I'd say I never procrastinate. But you know, you find those new challenges and you end up falling back into crummy old habits. Getting and staying motivated, something that I don't really struggle with personally, but I think a lot of people do, and I know from the letters that I get here at AOC that people do. Learning recall and creativity. Everybody wants to be more creative, so I think there's gold in here for everybody. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show is a fanarchy, it's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Barbara Oakley on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including her books. And I also post a lot of stuff on Twitter that never makes it to the show. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamp details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. There's two dots in there. Remember, we're sold out a few months in advance. So if you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. Also on the website is the blog with tons of amazing articles and also bonus episodes that aren't released in the iTunes feed for those of you who just can't get enough AOC. Subscribe on iTunes. We've got our iPhone and Android app as well. Write us a review. I will love you forever, and so will Jason for that matter. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.